Well, since yesterday was not only the uh, passing away day of Lumpur Cha, it was also the day Lumpur Ban passed away four years ago. So I thought I would read something and honor Lumpur Ban by reading some of his teachings. And then I'll, um, I'll just read a few of those. These are new translations, a work in progress of a book called Tang Hang Mukpon, or, or I just called it Path and Fruit in English. And, um, and then we'll go, go into more of this teachings of Lumpur Cha from a still forest pool. And uh, a lot of these teachings of Lungpur Ban, his monastery, Wat Doi Damachedi, was known as having some of the strictest and best, what we call a Wat in Thailand. Uh, they said you could, the toilets were so clean, you could eat off the floor in the bathroom. And uh, I, I never got to live there. I only visited a few times and also got to see a couple of his branch monasteries. And it was uh, quite impressive how they were looking after things. And uh, it's, a, it's a very good training, but also very difficult. And um, then uh, there's only a, only a few books in Thai of Longpore bands. There's uh, one that's, uh, the first one that was done is called Tang Heng Chivit or the way for life. Then the second one was Tang uh, Padamner, or the, the way forward. And then the, the last book they did before he passed away is Tang Heng Makpon, or Path and Fruit. And um, with the way forward, uh, this monk who's now disrobed, Ajahn Sanyamo, started translating it, and I became very inspired those teaching, by those teachings. So in 2015, I took it on myself to try to translate the entire thing and ended up retranslating it. That, that became that book. And then uh, was uh, did, did eventually get permission from Lungpur Band to print it as a book. And then, uh, um, and then this new one is kind of just an ongoing work in progress. It starts at the very beginning of the book with a quote from Lungpur Band. Sila, Samadhi, and Panya is the path. It is the training and it is the way. Where does this path lead? This is the path to knowing and seeing the mind clearly. The mind seen clearly is clean. It possesses brightness, uprightness, and malleability. When the mind is well established in brightness, uprightness, and malleability, then the mind is said to have Dhamma, for it has been trained by sila, samadhi, and panya. If we reach the point when the mind is well-trained and well-tempered by dhamma, then the mind is said to be liberated, and at that time the mind becomes dhamma, and final release appears. And I'll read some excerpts from this book. This talk is called Practice Monks. We say, practice monks, those words point to something wonderful beyond measure. May we all be real practice monks, directing our effort towards staying with our theme of practice, our kamatana. If us practice monks direct our attention somewhere else due to not taking an interest in the proper themes, then we have removed our heart from the practice and the result won't be correct. We won't be in line with people in the world calling us practice monks. 
The heart of a practice monk abides within the meditation theme. He buries himself deep in the kamatana and really goes headfirst into it. Head hair is the meditation theme. Body hair is the meditation theme. Nails are the meditation theme. Teeth are the meditation theme. Skin is the meditation theme. The word tacha pancha kamatana means the five meditation objects of head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, and skin. Or all 32 body parts continuing on from these five are another level or aspect of this theme. Us practice monks ought to bury our mind and heart deep in our meditation theme. This matter of walking meditation and sitting meditation is of utmost importance. This is the matter of contemplating our meditation themes of head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, and skin, seeing their unattractive nature. Train to see them as something unclean. Realize that they are earth, water, air, and fire. It is necessary to contemplate these things in order to realize their true nature. For those who have already gained some realization into these things, contemplate further and make them even more clear and apparent. Make them vivid and very clear. For those who haven't yet gained realization into these things, prod yourselves to hurry and enter into them. If we haven't gained this realization, then the mind won't gain an opportunity to reach the, quote, heart ordination, unquote. It won't be able to enter into the state of a noble one or even a novitiate. One must see into these meditation themes. One must realize the true nature of the meditation theme beforehand. Then the mind will reach the state of being a noble one. If you don't yet know and see and haven't focused on your study of these meditation themes, then this knowledge and vision will continue to escape you. Then one is a monk only on account of the shaven head, and none of us want that to be the case. We want to shave our whole head. We want to shave our whole mind and heart as well. Shave the mess maker completely off the mind and heart. Then that mind-heart sphere will be noble. All of us want to be monks by way of not just our whole body, but our whole mind as well. So hurry and get down to it, and don't delay. And what is our Dhamma razor, which can shave the mess maker off of the mind and off of the heart? Hurry and prod yourselves to cultivate by seeing head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, and skin. If we don't hurry and try to force ourselves by way of the method of contemplating head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, and skin to realize their true nature, then these very things will make the mind and heart be a mess. All beings in the world, every mind and heart, no matter what order of being they are, all hold just this head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, and skin. They are the mess makers for the minds and hearts of worldly beings. As ordained people, we have ample opportunity to get rid of, to wipe the mess maker out of the mind and out of the heart. Eventually, this mess maker will be all gone. We now have a precious opportunity to make this happen. But even though we have this precious opportunity, if we lack the appropriate effort and don't strive to use this opportunity to get the benefit, then we miss the opportunity to remove the mess maker. The mind will remain firmly stuck in its mess, just like a head which hasn't been shaved. If you search for cleanliness and beauty there, you won't be able to find it. Get really interested in this so that you all strive to 
so that you all strive to bury the mind and heart inside the Kamatana completely. In all four postures, don't let the heart get pulled away from the Kamatana. Don't lose the plot. Our defilements lay in waiting and will take the first opportunity to make the mind and heart lose the plot. There are many things which will cause our mind and heart to get distracted. If our earnestness of mind and determination of heart to stay with the Kamatana aren't enough, then old defilements tug at the mind, causing it to be swayed. They can tug at the heart, causing it to drift away and follow a wayward path. Those who benefit from their study and practice do so because they put their whole heart into it. They put their heart into everything they do. They see the benefits and receive the benefit which arises from the practice and training. With ordination and learning, if one doesn't put their heart into it, I feel that if one doesn't put their heart into it, then it's better not to not ordain. If such a person has ordained, they should quickly disrobe and pursue something else, for then they won't make a mess in the monastery. Then the villagers' rice won't go to waste. In truth, it is this way. I take the truth and speak it out. But perhaps what I have just said is a bit heavy. Perhaps it is better left unsaid. But I have spoken about the proper way to be, and we have to accept that. We accept it because we are people who respect the true Dhamma. That's uh, from a talk on the uh, 15th of July, um, 1991. The next talk is the foundation upon which path and fruit arise. A long time ago here, our Kruba Ajans were having a discussion about how to translate this word kamatana. They decided that it just means living here in this practice monastery. There were many Kruba Ajans here at that time, with Tanjokun Damachedi as the senior. Finally, they decided to translate kamatana as the base upon which path and fruit arise. They translated it like that. Kamatana is the foundation which enables path and fruit to arise. It's the foundation upon which virtue stands. It's the foundation upon which all goodness and all wholesome qualities arise. So we call it the base upon which path and fruit arise. We hope for the path and hope for the fruit. So what is this foundation? Just what is this foundation that we, that we are to build? What kind of foundation will cause path and fruit to arise out of it? Focus all your energies on this question. Be completely intent on this point. Don't withdraw the mind from this point. If we withdraw the mind from the work which will turn us into noble ones, where we, where we build up path and fruit, then, just like that, we become people who are distracted and heedless. Distracted and heedless means we've allowed the mind to drift from the work site where we build ourselves up to the state of noble ones. Only the Kamatana can prepare us to enter into the state of noble ones. If we haven't yet gained realization into the Kamatana, then we are monks only in name. But the heart isn't in line with what we call ourselves because we haven't yet seen into and clarified the Kamatana. This Kamatana is something most excellent. The Acharyas of ancient times established that in the going forth and higher ordination, the Kamatana must be spoken of every time. And the Kamatana must be taught to aspirants before they don the sacred triple robe set. This shows that the Kamatana is the very root of the monk's life and is our spiritual life. It's the root foundation of those who protect the sacred robe. So get interested and plant yourself into this root foundation. In the center is the birthplace of Maga and Pala. In the center is the birthplace of the monk. 
Monk here means the mind and refers to a mind and heart which has reached the highest. For the heart to reach the highest, it must have a breakthrough in the Kamatana first. If there hasn't been this breakthrough in the Kamatana, but instead one is still infatuated with the Kamatana objects, how can the mind become a monk? Reach an understanding. We now have this opportunity to gather our energies and strive with all our mindfulness, strength, and skill. Don't drift into laziness, lassitude, or a cavalier attitude which causes one to fall off track and lose the way. We thus go away from the point where the nascent path, fruit, and the Dhamma might arise in the heart. And the next talk is called Excellent Work. Practice monks have to be warriors, you know. For the moment, we can say that us monks are soldiers. People in the mil military sit in lines and stand in lines. Us monks are also soldiers. Calling ourselves soldiers means that we do battle with our enemy, the Kilesa. We fight the darkness and the blindness. We fight where our mind and heart are dark and shady. We fight where our mind and heart are bound up. Fight the darkness like this. Rip that which is dark and murky out of the heart. Exile the Kilesa from the boundary here and make them leave the country of the heart. Us monks, us practice monks are soldiers. We aren't the kind of soldiers who carry a rifle, but we have different types of guns. Our guns are sati and panya. Sila is our weapon. Samadhi is our weapon. Panya is our weapon. These Dhamma weapons have the ability to destroy our enemy, the darkness within. Our work is the work of killing off the defilements. The Lord Buddha spoke of the work for renunciates as being the work of killing off the defilements. This kilesa, is it found in the head? Is it found in your shins, your legs, or in the liver, the kidneys, the intestines, the belly, or perhaps in your bones? Does the kilesa abide in the hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, or skin? The kilesa aren't found in these things, but these things are the tools of the kilesa. Do you understand? If the kilesa didn't have these things, then what could it use as a tool? Without eyes, what will the kilesa take as their tool? The eyes are a tool of the kilesa. The ears are a tool of the kilesa. The nose is a tool of the kilesa. The tongue is a tool of the kilesa. These are what the kilesa has to work with. Our whole body, within and without, is definitely a tool of the kilesa. So we have to take out the commander. He must be taken out since his army is coming and because our work is to kill off the kilesa. So it's like this. If we just don't take anything at all as us or as a self, then where will the kilesa get their power, their sense of self from? The kilesa must have this sense of self for they rely on it completely. They take this as a tool for making the minds and hearts of unawakened people who are still deluded into having a sense of self to become into this sense of self, which in turn causes their minds to be dark, obscure, drunk, and confused. Then come the goddesses of craving and lust. The goddess of craving is incredibly skilled at creating wanting. She is very clever at creating longing. The goddess of lust is like this too. She goes about creating ever stronger discontent. Whenever we work to lessen our obscurations, these goddesses can be expelled from the heart. We keep sending them away until we no longer take anything as being me or mine. Don't remain indifferent, wake up. There is still much work to be done, so don't remain idle by not doing the work. We avoid our work by escaping into sleep and taking refuge in the comfort of lying down. Escaping into sleep and the comfort of lying down means we're still indifferent. 
There, such a one abides under the influence of the Achilles' weapons of laziness and lassitude. People who abide indifferent, do these people have it? Can they be millionaires? They follow a special path, the path which leads to extreme poverty. When this path of laziness is followed to its, quote, highest point, unquote, then one may, quote, achieve a life without shelter and without enough to eat. Renunciates who don't do the work of killing off the defilements and becoming real noble ones don't possess any wealth. They are monks without a weapon. The weapon here is Dhamma. Dhamma here means the sword of wisdom, which is sharp and penetrating on every side. It isn't just sharp on the front. It is sharp on the back and on each side as well. Strike in any direction. It's razor sharp all around. This is the sword of wisdom. Look in the direction where Kilesa hasn't been destroyed. It's gone. Try to see the path which, which was followed not for the destruction of the Kilesa. It's gone. Listen for thoughts which were followed not for the destruction of the Kilesa. They're gone, far away. Such is the power of the Dhamma. If it isn't like that, then one won't be able to resist the power of the Kilesa. So rouse yourselves. There is no work more excellent than this work which the Lord Buddha has offered us opportunity to do. The work which the Lord Buddha has offered to us is nothing more than the work of killing off our kilesa. We kill our kilesa. We can gain victory over our kilesa. We don't need to study how to gain victory over the kilesa of other people, for that is not our work. However many beings there are on this earth, we now have the ability to gain victory over our own kilesa. Though all other beings inhabiting this earth might still have kilesa, we can abide in peace and happiness. Yes, there is no work more excellent than the work of killing off the defilements. So we get a bit of a flavor for Longpore Band's hard-hitting teachings. And I'll read uh, one more excerpt before moving on to some Longpore Cha. This one's called The Most Excellent Life in the World. The Buddha Sasana, or the teachings of the Lord Buddha, teach practitioners to escape from the defilements. That is, to escape from greed, to escape from anger, and to escape from delusion. Thus, we must study right where we are deluded. If we don't look into where we are deluded, then how can our delusions ever leave or come to an end? Right now, where are we deluded? What are we deluded by? Where are we stuck? Where are we bewildered or crazy? We study right at the point of our delusion, right at the point of our confusion. Just this is the central aim of the entirety of the Lord Buddha's teachings. The teachings of the Lord Buddha are for giving rise to a sense of world weariness and dispassion. Wherever we give rise to lust, we study right there. Study right where you give rise to lust and passion. We apply our sati, samadhi, and panya in this study, building them up and giving them strength. Make them into a power. Make them unshakably strong. Where is the mind deluded? Probe down into the point where it's diluted. What is, that, what is that spot like? Is it stinky or is it fragrant? Is it dirty or is it good? Is it soft, orderly, and refined in some way? Study to make it clear. So, where are we diluted? We have to fix the problem right there at the point of delusion. We practice hitting the point, hitting the target of the Lord Buddha's teachings, with which he instructed practitioners to escape from this delusion. When delusion is all gone, and we don't have any more delusion, then what could anger be angry at? When delusion is all gone, 
where could greed, love, passion, and longing arise from? In short, the teachings of the Lord Buddha instruct practitioners to know and study with what we call Bhutho. Bhutho means the one who knows. Bhutho means the awakened one. It teaches us to be the one who knows. It teaches us to enter into Bhutho and thus be one who is awakened. One who wakes up in this way is one who isn't deluded by anything. There, all of you go ahead and study this. Really go for it. The life of ordination is the most excellent life in the world. It is a most worthy under undertaking. When we say the world, the world, we don't just refer to people living in the world at this time or in, the er in this era. Even the Buddha himself unceasingly praised and extolled the life of ordination and learning. The Savaka Arahants of the Lord Buddha also maintained their praise of the life of ordination and learning as a life which is excellent. All of us here have entered into this excellence, too. We look after our excellence and maintain it well. We work for the sake of excellence, so don't go do that which doesn't accord with the Dhamma. If we act, use our speech, or give rise to thoughts and emotions which lead away from according with Dhamma, then those very actions will ruin our state of excellence. No one else can bring us to ruin. There is no religion or creed which can ruin our state of excellence. Only we ourselves can bring ourselves to ruin. We undermine ourselves by not proceeding with caution. We lose our mindfulness to the point that we forget we are monks. Please understand this. A life gone forth is a life which is foremost. If we don't realize our state of excellence, we won't be able to maintain the life gone forth. Restrain your evil tendencies. The Lord Buddha instructed and encouraged those gone forth that this is their duty the Kruba Ajans would say, surround this body with restraint and composure. Don't underestimate the benefits of this bodily circumspection. To reach path, fruit, and Nibbana, go this way. If you aren't interested in restraining your evil tendencies, then you are accounted as a person who has turned their back on the way leading to the gates of path, fruit, and Nibbana. Okay, so, and most of those teachings were probably given during. Uh, Padimoka Ovadas just to monks, so it's the sort of Krupajan not holding back, telling telling his monks how to practice. And I'll just read a few from here. Still forest pool, continuing on with a few uh, snippets, teachings. Follow your teacher. As you grow in Dhamma, you should have a teacher to instruct and advise you. The matter of concentrating the mind of samadhi is much misunderstood. Phenomena occur in meditation that otherwise do not normally arise. When this happens, a teacher's guidance is crucial, especially in those areas in which you have wrong understanding. Often where he corrects you will be just where you thought you were right. In the complexity of your thinking, one view may obscure the other and you get fooled. Respect your teacher and follow the rules or system of practice. If the teacher says to do something, do it. If he says to desist, desist. This allows you to make an honest effort and leads to making knowledge and vision manifest in your mind. If you do as I am saying, you will see and know. True teachers speak only of the difficult practice of giving up or getting rid of self. Whatever may happen, do not abandon the teacher. Let him guide you because it is easy to forget the path. Alas, few who study Buddhism really want to practice. 
I certainly urge them to practice, but some people can only study in a logical way. Few are willing to die and be, a, be born again free. I feel sorry for the rest. And this next one is trust your heart. In the practice of Dhamma, there are many methods. If you know their point, they will not lead you astray. However, if you are a practitioner who does not properly respect virtue in a collected mind, you will not succeed, because you are bypassing the path followed by the great forest masters of the past. Do not disregard these basics. If you wish to practice, you should establish virtue, concentration, and wisdom in the mind, and aspire to the three, gem three gems, Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. Stop all activity, be an honest person, and go to it. Although various things deceive you time after time, if you are aware of them, you will eventually be able to drop them. The same old person comes telling the same old lies. If you know it, you need not believe him. But it takes a long time before you know. Our habits are ever striving to deceive. When I'd been practicing for only two or three years, I could still not trust myself. But after I had experienced much, I learned to trust my own heart. When you have this deep understanding, whatever occurs, you can let it occur, and all things will pass on and be quelled. You will reach a point where the heart tells itself what to do. It is constantly prodding, constantly mindful. Your only concern need to be con to continue contemplating. I think I read those two already, but uh, always nice to read them again. Okay, let's moving on here. Why do you practice? A group of travelers came to visit Ajahn Shah with three elegant questions. Why do you practice? How do you practice? What is the result of your practice? They were sent as a delegation by a European religious organization to ask these questions to a series of great masters throughout Asia. Ajahn Shah closed his eyes, waited, and then answered with three questions of his own. Why do you eat? How do you eat? How do you feel after you have eaten well? Then he laughed. Later, he explained that we already understand and that teaching has to direct students back to their own inner wisdom, to their own natural dhamma. Therefore, he had reflected the search of these men throughout Asia back to the greater search within. Let the tree grow. The Buddha taught that things that come about of their own, once you have done your work, you can leave the results to nature, to the power of your accumulated kama. Yet your exertion of effort should not cease. Whether the fruit of wisdom comes quickly or slowly, you cannot force it, just as you cannot force the growth of a tree you have planted. The tree has its own pace. Your job is to dig a hole, water, and fertilize it, and protect it from insects. That much is your affair, a matter of faith. But the way the tree grows is up to the tree. If you practice like this, you can be sure all will be well, and your plant will grow. Thus, you must understand the difference between your work and the plant's work. Leave the plant's business to the plant, and be responsible for your own. If the mind does not know what it needs to do, it will try to force the plant to grow and flower and give fruit in one day. This is wrong view, a major cause of suffering. Just practice in the right direction and leave the rest to your kama. Then, whether it takes one or one hundred or one thousand lifetimes, your practice will be at peace. Too much of a good thing. When Ajahn Shah arrived at a new American meditation center, the many Western students there were quickly charmed and impressed by his teaching. He was clear and direct, yet loving and humorous, as he poked fun at people's fears and attachments. 
It was exciting to have such a skillful and famous master visit. The new stories, golden-robed monks, and fresh expressions of Dhamma were all wonderful. Please do not go as soon as you planned. Do try to stay as long, a long time, the students requested. We are so happy to have you. Ajahn Chah smiled. Of course, things are nice when they are new. But if I stay and teach and make you work, you will get tired of me, won't you? How is your practice when the excitement wears off? You would be bored with me before long. How does this restless wanting mind stop? Who can teach you that? There only can you learn the real Dhamma. So I'll leave it there. And uh, if, uh, it's two o'clock, so we have some time for questions or comments. When, when I was uh, going through the process of, it was five years ago that I was translating some of these teachings on retreat in Thailand and of Longpur Ban, and I haven't worked on it since then. Um, and I remember that one talk uh, where uh, the very the first one I read, um, where he says at the end, he gets. Uh, I feel they, you know, if the, if they're not putting their heart into the practice, I feel they shouldn't. It's better if they don't ordain or they should quickly disrobe and pursue something else. And I was thinking, as I was translating that, I was thinking, oh, that's super, that's so harsh. And I was feeling all my own faults were coming up in my mind as I was translating that. And I thought, oh, that's too much. Why did he have to say that? That's so harsh. And then I translated the next line. It says, it says perhaps what I have just said is a bit heavy. Perhaps it is better left unsaid. <laughs> it's like he already, he already predicted that reaction. Antony. Well, given that nobody has any questions, uh, maybe it's okay to hijack the, the Q&A. And, uh, you know, uh, the hindrance of restlessness, uh, what, what uh, are some antidotes for, for that? Uh, there's a couple I could think of that from uh, one Longpur Cha would talk about because they would do sits under, the, under a hot tin roof in the hot season and people would be sweating and become the mind could become very very restless and he would say just to wrap yourself up in all your robes and just sit through it until the restlessness is gone and just look at it directly so he had this kind of kamikaze approach to just going straight into it and uh, looking at it head on rather than believing it or giving into it and just feeling the energy coming back to the body feeling the energy of the restlessness and just looking at it head on and just enduring through it. Um, there's another place in the, in the suttas where restlessness is uh, the mindfulness of in and out breathing. The anapanasati is an antidote to restlessness where you just come back to the body and the focus on the breathing process in order to, uh, but the most subtle levels of restlessness that's very, very subtle is kind of the, just the shakiness of the mind. They say it only disappears at our hardship. So there's different levels of it. There's like boredom, which is coarse restlessness, just wanting to do something or just having a lot of energy and wanting to do something. You can also, I think, also something like walking meditation, if, if it's like a bodily restlessness, actually doing like, fast walking meditation, if you want to, um, if it's say a period of this say retreat where we're doing sitting and walking meditation, you could do something like fast walking meditation. So uh, 
those are a, those are a few things. Yeah. Coming back to the uh, head hair, body hair, teeth, nails, skin. Um, can you give an example of like what the um, kind of focusing on those as your object kind of looks like? Yeah, in Lungpur Ban, he alludes to it where he said these these five kamatana objects, head, hair, body, hair, nails, teeth, and skin, these are what's visible on a human body, and they're the very things we get deluded by. So we mostly perceive these things as beautiful and alluring, and we get infatuated both with our own five meditation objects and, our, and those of others, so our own head, hair, body, hair, nails, teeth, and skin, and those of others, other people. And the whole practice is to contemplate the unattractive nature of those things. So, so like with head hair, you might think like, oh, well, what happens if a hair falls in my soup? Oh, it's considered unattractive. It's not nice anymore. Or if I shave my head and then the hair is not on my head anymore, it's suddenly it's, it's something that was mine, but now it's just on the ground and it, it's not something I would want to put back onto my body now that I've shaved my hair off i don't want to i don't want to have it on me it's something that's seen as unpleasant or you know skin when looked close closely at then if you look at skin under a microscope it's not pleasant it's not something it's got like oil coming out of it and we just look at these these unattract the true unattractive nature of these things because the mind is always by almost by instinct, it's deluded into thinking that these things are attractive and worth giving a lot of attention to. Like, like uh, And there's multi-billion dollar industries devoted to beautifying these things and uh, giving a lot of importance to them. And so uh, really it's getting creative and trying to see where we're deluded by them and then focusing in on that and asking ourselves, is that true or not? Is that really the case or not? Is that, is that uh, head hair, body hair, nail, teeth, skin, are those things in the way that I think each one of those things is attractive? Is it really truly attractive or is it just something that it's because the mind is deluded and not looking in a honest way that those things are attractive? So it's it's using those meditation objects. And this is also considered in the suttas, it's considered an unpleasant practice. It's not something where you're like feeling really happy generally when you're doing it because it is going against that habitual mind that is getting excited and happy and worked up about these things. So it's actually considered an unpleasant practice. Um, so there, it's not necessarily the case that we're going to you know, get into really deep samadhi and feel super great when we're contemplating these things, it's going to be unpleasant for a period of time. But then those defilements of longing and passion won't be arising. And there will be a sense of unpleasantness or a kind of vacancy or emptiness. But the mind is, that's the painful aspect of the mental purification but then we find we don't actually run into problems anymore when the mind doesn't get infatuated with those things. And then we sort of, it goes back up from there in a, in a different way. So, uh, so really having to get creative with our contemplation of those things. 
Um, but then once it, we're taught that once it goes into aversion, so if we do a suba or we do uh, this practice of contemplating the five meditation subjects, um, in, if it goes too much into aversion, we're supposed to temper that with metta. And also for different uh, temperaments, different personality types. So sometimes for people who are already aversion types, they might go too far into contemplating the, into con, you know, almost like a maniacal glee in, you know, uh, mangled corpse, pictures of mangled corpses and stuff in their kuti. And uh, that's where it's gone too far in that direction where it needs to be more tempered with, with metta. So if you have, you know, if your kuti is just covered with pictures of intestines and, and just like really gross, uh, like gore, then uh, it's, that's not really what we're looking, we're looking for a balance. So the Buddha uses this, um, he uses this image of a bag of beans that uh, Ajahn Kurtadamo read the other day. So it's just like a, bean, a bag that has two openings and uh, you open up the bag and you see that there's rice, millet, green beans, brown beans, kidney beans. There's just all these different beans mixed together and that's more, the, it's a very, um, and uh, you could say they're wet beans. They're, uh, it's, it's unpleasant, but it's, we don't have to like go too far into like, you know, getting onto the train accident pictures website or whatever, where it's uh, just <laughs> almost too much. Actually, I got most affected by seeing a monk corpse, uh, a Western monk who had died when I was three vasas at Wapananachat, and with no visible injury on him. And for me, just seeing a dead body, a dead monk who looked like me was very powerful. That's, that's more powerful for me than, than seeing, uh, you know, mangled corpses or, or something like that. It was more, much more personal, had a very strong effect with that image being right in front of me with, oh, that's the same skin that I have. Oh, that's the same hair that I have. But now it's the skin of a corpse, the hair of a corpse and so on. And, uh, you know, that's, um, and it's no longer vital. It's no longer animated. So the fact that these things, uh, they, they die, they, they fall off of us, they pass away. Or you could even think that uh, uh, in some of the teachings of Lumpur Bani talks about how head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, and skin, in a way, they're already dead, actually. They're just like dead stuff that's on us. And uh, that you can't, there's no real dividing line between life and death in terms of those five things that essentially we are like a corpse that's just animated still, that's just walking around. And uh, that these things, they're the skin of a corpse and the skin that's on me right now is not much different. And so uh, to contemplate it in that way can help. Uh, it really cools the mind down from any sense of infatuation with these things. Um, but then also, but then you might have, say, uh, greed types uh, who um, really don't want to do that type of a practice. Their mind will, will really, really uh, shy away from this type of a practice, this type of contemplation. And they're the ones 
uh, or I could say we're the ones who need to do the, that type of practice. And, uh, um, and you know, for like a greed type, it's like, oh, wanting to do, just want to do metta, just want to kind of focus on beautiful things. And, but then we already have enough of that, so we need to actually kind of force ourselves to do the asuba practice. So it's kind of getting getting creative with it, seeing where we're deluded, and and then focusing on that point. And it, you know, in the course of our meditation, when when we're meditating, a image might pop up or something, and then that's where we have to see, oh, why am I enamored by that, or why am I attracted by that? Then then contemplating in that way. And sometimes even uh, if the mind is just thinking and all over the place and not really focused, even just bringing up those five meditation objects and not not even focusing on them, just focus, focusing on the words, just saying head, hair, body, hair, nails, teeth, skin, head, hair, body, hair, nails, teeth, skin can actually, just even those words can help the mind to come back to a sense of focus and not being just totally distracted. Okay, so yeah, I just wanted to honor Lung Paul Ban because he also passed away on January 16th, in addition to Wong uh, Por Cha. So, um, so yeah, for this, uh, for this afternoon, uh, open it up. The um, group practice will be optional. This afternoon, everybody has been putting forth a lot of effort and sadhu to that. It's been uh, quite inspiring to see a lot of people doing long sitting, long walking meditation, and, uh, and also to see people getting the benefits and the fruits of that in terms of uh, getting inspired by the practice and, and wanting to put forth a fair amount of effort in the practice. So um, so we'll, we will uh, ease off a little bit. Anybody who wants to use the hall, of course, this afternoon is welcome to, but also anybody who wants to spend time on their own. Um, and uh, like myself, I'll, I'll spend some time on my own this afternoon. And, and then we'll still have... Uh, evening puja tonight, and then no morning puja tomorrow morning.